Hey, good morning, Reach Montreal, and uh, anybody else who's joining us online. Uh, we're so glad you're here. Uh, before we jump into this week's teaching, uh, two things. If you're a part of Reach Montreal and you've been looking forward to just hearing about our plans and phases of how we are going to reopen and get back to being together physically, uh, please check your email. We sent out an update just to give you an idea of some of the things that we've been going through, some of the protocols that we want to be uh, setting up in the near future, and what to look out for uh, for July and August. Uh, and secondly, today, if you hear a small hum in the background, it's my AC, uh, so that I don't sweat and short-circuit everything in this room, um, and we wouldn't have any of this, okay? Uh, so before we jump in, let me pray for us, and we'll continue our series. Father, we just thank you that we can still gather like this, that we still have the privilege and the honor to be together as your church. I just pray for each of us who do know you and follow you, that you would use this morning as a way to draw our eyes to you, to draw our hearts to you more and more truly. And I pray for those of us who are just kind of checking things out and, and looking at Jesus and studying the Bible to see what we make of it, that you too would use this as a way just to encourage and to uh, bring our eyes to you. We love you. We need you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have been joining us, we are in a series called Scripture, God's Word, Our Lives. And we've been going through looking at what is the Bible? How do we use the Bible? What is the Bible for? How do we read it? And for the next three weeks, as we finish the series, we're going to be kind of hinging and looking specifically at some of the practical hows, how to read it how to study it, how to apply the Bible, uh, an ancient book, uh, miles and miles away, how do we apply it to our modern lives here and now. And last week, we got to look at the important topic of why trust the Bible. And if you missed that, I encourage you to go back on YouTube or our podcast and give that a listen or a watch because we got to see that the Bible is by far the most accurately preserved and verifiable document of human history. The set of documents is the most read, most printed, most translated, sold, and influential literary work of human history. Not just antiquity, but of human history. And so we looked at specifically what the Bible claims and can we trust? We answered the question, can we trust the claims of the Bible? Now, I want to remind you of the definition we've been using as we've gone through this series. It's important to come back to this so it just kind of like gets into our muscle memory. And here's how we've been defining the Bible throughout this series. The Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human that tells one unified story leading us to Jesus. Now, how we define the Bible really um, changes how we approach the Bible. It changes what we do with the Bible. So the question we want to focus on this morning is, how do we use the Bible like that? How do we use the Bible in line with what it's defined to do, which is lead us, tell the story that leads us to relationship with Jesus. Here's how we're going to do it. Turn to Psalm chapter 1, right in the beginning, smack dab in the middle of your Bible. Turn to Psalm 1. We're going to read the first Psalm in its entirety, and then we're going to just parse a few things out this morning. Here's what Psalm 1 says. Blessed is the one, the person, the man, the woman, who does not follow the advice of the wicked, nor stand around with sinners, nor join in with mockers. There's lots of those online. But they delight instead in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. 
They, those, those people, the ones who meditate on the law, are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit, being fruitful each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all that they do. But not the wicked. They are like worthless chaff scattered by the wind. They will be condemned at the time of judgment. Sinners will have no place among the righteous, the godly. For the Lord, Yahweh, watches over the path of the godly, but the path of the wicked leads to destruction. Now there is so much in there. And if you noticed already some of the language out of that psalm, Jesus draws on very heavily. Even Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount about two ways to live, two paths, the narrow gate and the wide gate come from language from the Psalms like this. But the book of Psalms is a tremendous work of poetry and wisdom sayings from lots of different authors. The book of Psalms is kind of one book made up of 150 different writings, um, songs and, and poems, but it's actually organized into five distinct sections, the whole book of Psalms. And the reason why the ancient authors did that as they collected these Psalms is to mimic the Pentateuch, to mimic the first five books of the law, the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. So the reason why it's, it's, it's uh, organized like that is because it starts with blessed is the one and then the rest of the five books show us how to live a life that has us satisfied, happy, blessed, the blessed one, okay? Now, if you notice the language too of blessed is the one, what does that sound like? Well, of course, Jesus starts his sermon on the mount with the blessed are those, the blessed are you, if, the beatitudes, we call them. And in the Sermon on the Mount, which, which is Jesus' most well-known, well-celebrated, most prolific sermon um, in, that we have on record in the New Testament, what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is he just lays out this kingdom ethic. What life looks like, true, fulfilled, full life looks like with God reigning as king. And that that kingdom has come through who? Well, through him. And he lays out what the truly blessed life looks like. And when you and I hear the word blessed, again, we do funny kind of Western and unbiblical things with this and we turn it into kind of like, well, you know, God blesses me when, and then I just fill in the blank with whatever I feel like is a blessing or just even, even in kind of non-Christian culture, just hashtag blessed. Anytime we have health or, or wealth or happiness or luck or fortune or circumstances are just going well for us, we are hashtag blessed. But that's not the biblical portrait of what a blessed life looks like. And we don't have time to unpack this in its entirety, but what right here in Psalm 1 does for us is it gives us three images, if you caught that, kind of three like mental pictures of what blessed looks like, of what happiness is, of what fulfillment truly is, of what satisfaction is. And the first thing it says is that the blessed one will be fruitful, that there's, there's act, will be like a tree, it says. The, the man or the woman that is truly blessed is like a tree planted by a stream. Now, you and I kind of think of a tree, you're just kind of, oh, that's nice. I've got some over there and they, they look nice. But in the ancient Near East, you have to understand that they were very scarce. Trees planted by water are pretty scarce in the desert. And actually, most of the wars throughout the Old Testament are over either water or trees, and that's why sometimes in the prophets you hear kind of prophetic oracles about the cedars of Lebanon and you're kind of like, oh, I guess Lebanon has nice trees. I mean, you see, you hear all these different uses of tree. Why? Because trees are the symbol of fruitfulness, of health, of prosperity, 
of things being healthy and going well. And in fact, trees are the third most mentioned topic across the Bible next to God and human beings. It's trees. And it's a recurring theme all throughout to take people, human beings, and relate them to trees. They're like trees. And Jesus does it all the time, talking about fruit and the the human life bearing fruit or not. Bad fruit or, or good fruit, rotten fruit or healthy fruit, the human life. And really, this is a throwback to Genesis. And Psalm 1, in book 1 of the Psalms, is, is trying to mirror Genesis, book 1 of the Torah. Where, in the garden narrative, the, the beginning of all things, creation comes, and there's the, obviously, when we get to humanity and God and perfect relationship between those two, we have these two trees. We have the tree of life, which offers sustenance and life and goodness as God defines it. And then we have what? Well, we have an alternative tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which ultimately leads to what? Death. It's like the chaff that just flakes off the tree. It's not healthy. It's not fruitful. And this in the garden shows us that there's two ways to live, two different types of people. Those who will be blessed and follow what God has defined as good and right and true and beautiful and take of the tree of life, or another type of person who will go and define what is good and evil and pursue wisdom and knowledge apart from God, and that ultimately leads to death. So that's the first thing that Psalm 1 kind of wants us to hyperlink back and understand about the blessed life. And number two, we see that the blessed life, the tree that's mentioned, is durable. It says that their leaves won't wither. Meaning that this kind of person, think about like a really uh, resilient tree, right? Think about like a cedar or a pine tree. They're very durable. They're very resilient to different conditions, different weather, um, different conditions in the soil, that kind of thing. What this is saying is that the blessed person, the one who the psalm is describing, is the person that will withstand trials and and tests and suffering and, and questions and kind of valleys in their life, circumstances that come, they will last. They're durable. And third, and finally, that the blessed life here in Psalm 1 is, leads to the person being, what does it say? Prosperous, successful. And now that's not, again, kind of a, a, a pros, prosperity that we would think about it, which is kind of like the boat and the, the car, the cottage, the thing. Uh, because why? Well, you can have all of that and still not be truly blessed. Right? And so right here, prosperous, prosperity is actually contrasted with the opposite way of the wicked. If you notice that, that the opposite, the way of the wicked are not good for anything, the Hebrew says. They're just kind of like chaff. It just kind of blows away. There's not successful what really truly matters at all. Just kind of doing nonsense for a time and living for things that don't last. And then the wind comes, blows it away, and you're gone and you're forgotten, and there's nothing that you've done that truly mattered. That's the way of the wicked. That's the end run of those who would go after the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and the one who would be, the psalm says, wicked. Why? Because it's not living in, re- in, line, in alignment with reality, with the reality that God has defined what is good and right and true, and living in light of that and in line with that is what leads to a truly satisfied, full life. Now, so Psalm 1 does all of that, okay? Now, what do we want to do with it? Well, 
Notice what Psalms, someone says about how that's possible. How was that life made possible? Well, it says that this person delights in the law of the Lord. Delights in that their greatest pleasure in life, something that they delight in is the word of the Lord. And then it goes on to say, and they meditate on it day and night. It's almost like this daily obsession that their daily life is about this law of God, this law of the Lord, the words of God. Now, in the Old Testament especially, when the word law is used, it can mean different things. But most of the time when the word law of the Lord, law of Yahweh is used, it's either pointing us to the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, or God's word in its entirety. Saying that God's word is about God's ways, And it gives us a self-portrait and revelation of who God is and what God's like. And the person that delights in and takes pleasure in that is truly blessed. It's the one that is truly satisfied, living life fully and fruitfully. Now, this is not a posture of simply learning the word of God. If you notice, it's delighting in. It's desiring A little bit later in Psalm 119, verse 72, the psalmist says, the law of your mouth, which is the very words that come out of God's mouth, is more precious to me than many pieces of gold and silver. That see, it's different than just studying it. It's different than it just being something that I come to for Uh, to reference when I need advice or reference when I find it helpful, but that it's actually something I delight in. There's a very different posture of this person, this person, this man, this woman that's being described here, that the word of God is actually something to be delighted in. And if you notice the other word that I want to highlight here is the word meditate, that this person meditates on his word. And I know meditation today, especially in our context, kind of a buzzword. It's kind of in and it just kind of conjures up images of $8 chai lattes and yoga pants, which aren't really pants. So you shouldn't wear them as pants. But that's kind of what meditation kind of conjures up for us. But what we have to understand is that biblically speaking, biblical meditation is very different than kind of the, 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 um, uh, the modern Eastern meditation. So, so biblical meditation, then kind of modern Eastern meditation. The goal of Eastern meditation is an emptying of self. It's an emptying of mind. It's a detachment from. It's kind of a clearing of mind and self to find answers because ultimately answers um, to everything that you need are inside yourself. So it's a, it's a plumbing into the depths of self, emptying of self, but then a, a, a detachment with everything that is around us. Whereas biblical meditation is actually the inverse of that. Yes, there's an emptying, but ultimately you don't just empty to be emptied. You empty of self to be filled with more of God's self. That it's actually a filling of our mind. It's a filling of our heart with who God is, what God says, what God is like, and then it's allowing God to change us from the inside out. And despite what culture tells us, and I think that's why kind of the modern yoga yoga meditation is so popular, but despite what culture tells us, true joy, happiness, satisfaction, and life is not found by listening to yourself. 
It's not found by following your heart and living your truth. It's alternatively, it's actually found in listening to God, following his heart and living in light of his truth. That true joy, the, the biblical version of meditation shows us true joy is found in self-denial, not self-actualization. Jesus in John 15 highlights that. And he says, I speak these things claiming about his word, the same of of God's word. I speak these things that your joy may be full. So we actually need to know what God says in order to understand what a full and fulfilled life looks like. So biblical meditation, when it's used here in the Psalms, biblical meditation isn't passive emptying. It's actually an active filling. It's an act of filling with someone else outside of ourself. And it's that someone, knowledge of that someone, God himself, that changes us. And by devoting our full attention, energy, and focus on who God is and what God has said, we end up delighting in that. And what we delight in and find pleasure in is ultimately what we become. The Bible calls it worship. And right here in the Psalms, the person who delights in the word of God is the one that becomes truly blessed because they're transformed by this God, this God who speaks, this God who reveals himself. Another Psalm in Psalm 77 says it similarly with the kind of same tone of meditation. I will ponder, I will think deeply about all of your work and I will meditate on your mighty deeds. This is a a deep thinking. This isn't a casual kind of approach to the Bible. This isn't rushing with our coffee in the morning for our 15-minute Devo on our way to work. This is a deep, slow, kind of infusing of God's word right into the muscle memory of who we are. And so that's what I want to focus on today. I want to look specifically at how can we meditate on God's word. Not just read it, not just study it, not just um, uh, memorize it, but actually meditate on it and then internalize it. And what's really interesting about this word in Hebrew is that the Hebrew word for meditate uh, is also used as like growling or groaning, almost like this, this muttering to yourself. It's like a constant thing that we're doing, looking like a crazy person, talking to yourself quietly, right? but it's also used as like growling and I couldn't help but kind of have the image of like a dog with their bone. Okay, so the dog will, I mean, growls when you get close to try to take their bone away and they spend hours playing with it and, and growling about it and chewing on it and digesting it and ultimately through all of what they're doing with that bone, they're actually eating it. Eventually that bone is gonna kind of be whittled down to nothing and they're gonna need a new bone. That's kind of the imagery of the Hebrew word for us to kind of like come and just chew on and digest and growl with the word of God so that we actually internalize it. We, we, we digest it. We chew on it. We don't just casually kind of like read it, get, it, get over it, uh, memorize it, think about it, and, and, and look at it, but we actually chew on it. We internalize it. And this will probably remind you of other places in the Bible where this image is used, the idea of actually eating God's word or feasting on it. That's what I want you to think about when you think about meditation, that we're actually feasting on God's word. I think the most well-known version of this is in Revelation 10, 
we had this epic scene, right, of this, this huge angel holding a scroll, one foot on the sea, one foot on the earth. Um, and by the way, you know li- not to read that literally, but you know to read that apocalyptically and literarily. Um, so stop doing funny things with the mark of the beast. All right, we settled it. But here's what's happening. There's this epic scene with this angel holding the scroll. And John, the, the author of Revelation, um, the, the angel says, take it, the scroll, the word, and eat it. And then John describes it as sweet as honey, but bitter to his stomach. And it's sweet as honey to his lips, but bitter to his stomach. Why? Well, because there's something about the word of God that, that just gives us that oomph in our gut. It convicts us. It, it leaves us with a turned over stomach that we kind of feel like we have indigestion when we take it in sometimes because it confronts us and it challenges us, yet it's so sweet. We also see this same image being used in Psalm 119 a little bit later in the Psalms. It pops up again in Ezekiel 3 where Ezekiel the prophet is eating the scroll And again in Jeremiah 15, and Jeremiah says, when your words came to me, I ate them. There's actually this image of you taking it and consuming the word of God. So just as when we think about eating and feasting and food and physical nutrition, just as everything we eat and consume into our body metabolizes and digests and impacts our body positively or negatively, um, whether it's, it's impacting kind of our muscle tissue or the synapses in our brain or the blood flowing through our veins, just like food does that to the body, the word of God is also to be taken, to be consumed, to be eaten, to be internalized, to be metabolized kind of into our being, into our very person. Eugene Peterson in his book, Eat This Book, which is exactly what his book is about, He describes it like this. This is brilliant. Eating a book takes it all in, assimilating it into the tissues of our lives. Readers become what they read. If Holy Scripture is to be something other than mere gossip about God, then it must be internalized. He continues, Christians feed on Scripture. That's the image. Holy Scripture nurtures the holy community as food nurtures the human body. Christians don't simply learn or study or use scripture. We assimilate it. We take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love, cups of cold water, missions into all the world, healing and evangelism and justice in Jesus' name, hands raised in adoration of the Father, feet washed in company with the Son. I love how he describes that. I love how he describes how the word of God to the body of Christ as a community is like food to the human body. That there's something about our intake that really does produce our output. And what we bring into our body always affects what kind of output we have as far as health and fruitfulness. And that's exactly what Psalm 1 is doing here. By saying, what are you taking in? How are you feasting on God's word? How are you meditating on it? Slowing down, cutting out all distractions and meditating on the word by internalizing it. And if we're honest, most of us don't really approach scripture like that. 
Most of us kind of, well, I got to study it or, well, check a, a box that I did my readings, my verses for the day. But how often do we actually slow down prayerfully, get around the word, slowly and carefully read it in order to meditate on it, to take it in, to consume it, to feast on it. Why? Because we delight in the God that it speaks about. That's a radically different posture than what many of us are used to. And I actually think that this will, will, will help many of us who have struggled to read the Bible. If we understand that the word of God is the thing that we should be feasting on, that delighting in it, and that it's there that God wants to meet us, that should radically shape the priority that it takes in our daily life. And this too is exactly how Jesus speaks of scripture. In Matthew 4, in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, right before he kind of comes out of the gate and starts his public ministry, we see that Jesus uses the word in particular to respond to the temptations of the devil in the wilderness. And this mirrors intentionally the garden temptation where in the garden there's this tragic fall where humanity turns away from what God has said and there's this threefold kind of temptation and distortion of what God has said. And in the narrative, if you're reading kind of Genesis 1 and 2 and then we hit Genesis 3, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we're introduced to the serpent. And he just kind of like intrudes into the story. And in the ancient Near East, the serpent was a symbol of power and wisdom, something that should be considered or, or pondered on. And he intrudes into the story and he doesn't come and attack man and woman. He comes and attacks what? God's word. And, and you should remember this. We talk about this often, but he does it in three different ways. First of all, he casts doubt on whether what God says is true by saying, well, did God really say don't eat of any tree? And in doing that, the question that just kind of lingers in the garden is, well, what's, what's God really like? Maybe he's harsh and restrictive and legalistic. Maybe he's not after our good. Maybe he's not loving. It casts doubt on what God said by casting doubt on what God is like. And then secondly, the serpent denies what God does say. No, 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 you won't, you won't die. No, he was just, no, he, he's dramatic. You won't die if you go after that. It's just, don't worry about it. And then third, he distorts what God does say. Distorts it by saying, well, well, here's why God said don't eat of it because he knew you would be like him. And that also is a lie. So this threefold lie that shapes up in the garden, in a real way, the whole story of the Bible is a playing out of everything wrong stems from the wrong answer to the right question. Did God really say? And the hiss of the serpent goes across the pages of scripture and across human history where everything that is wrong with the world, all sin, all brokenness, every lie, every fit of anger, every act of racism, every bit of injustice, murder, oppression, abortion, greed, all of that stems from the wrong answer to the right question. Did God really say? So what is true of the garden is true today. That this lie kind of hangs over us. That God's word is something that we stand over 
and cast judgment upon and we, we don't trust who God is and we kind of, well, God's not God and he's not good and God's definitely not for you and I. He definitely doesn't care and he definitely doesn't love us. So let's just define what is right and good and true and go get what delights me. And as Psalm 1 is showing us, that is the way of the wicked. It leads to death. Contrary to the lie in the garden, it does lead to death. It leads to brokenness. It leads to looking for delight in things that were never made to delight us. And the enemy of the garden uses the same strategy with Jesus. And the same temptation, the threefold temptation in the garden is repeated in the wilderness temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4. Where the enemy says, turn stones to bread. What is that? Well, good for food, for the flesh. He says, well, say, I'll give you all the splendor of all kingdoms. What's that? Well, it's delight to the eyes as Eve is looking at the other fruit. And then third, what about an angelic enthronement? I'll give you that. That'll be awesome. That's pride. Be like God. The same threefold temptation of the garden is repeated with Jesus. The difference is that Jesus responds and succeeds where the first humans failed and where you and I fail. Jesus responds in Matthew 4, 4, and he quotes, you guessed it, the word of God. He quotes Deuteronomy 8, 2 in response to the enemy's temptation to deny God's word and delight in it. He responds and he says, man and woman cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And a little bit later in John 6, Jesus says what? I am the bread of life. And that's a direct link between himself as God, himself as the word of God, and pointing to himself as the one, the only one who is able to give true life. Where you and I fail to trust God's word and delight in it, Jesus succeeds. Where the first man and woman failed to trust God's word and delight in him, Jesus succeeds. And his response to the temptation all three times is, it is written. It is written. Wait, wait, but did God really say? It is written. But, but no, no, but did you think about it? Did God really? It is written. Now the key in all that is that Jesus himself, he's able to respond to temptation and lies. Why? Because he's full of God's word. Because he has feasted on it. Because he's eaten it. Because he's meditated on it on it and internalized it that's what comes out when he's tempted and this is so important for you and i because many of you live lives where you're just kind of on this roller coaster of feeling like you're you're still kind of trying to impress god and then when you mess up or you fail or you sin or you fall short you're like ah god will you let me back in will you will you love me again and that's not how this works in fact it's the other way around that the word of God becomes powerful when we internalize it proactively. Not reactively after we've blown it. Not reactively after we've gone through something and then thought, well, maybe that'll be helpful. But some of you are surprised when you fall into sin or fall into temptation, but you haven't been feasting and meditating on God's word. What did you expect? Why did you expect anything different? You and I will believe lies when we're not being shaped by the truth. We will. And Psalm 119.11 captures this perfectly. 
the psalmist says, I have stored up your word in my heart. I've stored it up, like I've stashed it up in me, your word in me, so that I will not sin against you. So, so often we run to the word after we've sinned, after we've sinned and after we've failed and after we've fallen short. And God is, of course, ready to meet us there. He is. But what if day and night, daily, as a priority, we feasted on God's word. We meditated on it. We chewed on it. We internalized it. Sin, failing, weird stuff that comes out of us, stuff that we said that we shouldn't have said, ways that we behaved and when we, when we shouldn't have behaved that way, private sin that only you and God know. All of that would be mitigated not by us just like asking for forgiveness after, but for us being proactive in feasting on God's word, on actually using it as a meditation literature, as the thing that ultimately does plant us like trees next to streams so that when a drought comes, when the sun is beating down, when a famine hits that land, that tree still produces fruit because it's planted. Meditating on God's word is what plants us. Internalizing, feasting, meditating on the words of God and the ways of God is the only thing that keeps us when we go to walk away from God. And that's so important. And Jesus doesn't just do that once. He does it so that he's showing you and I that it's in the word that we find our strength too. That it's in the word that we find the words of God to fight temptation. So just hear me. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're currently a follower of Jesus, the greatest threat to your life right now is a closed Bible. It's a closed Bible. The greatest threat to your spiritual health is a closed Bible. Not the devil not whether you'll find a spouse and who you're going to marry, not how good your kids are going to turn out, not if your RRSPs are going to be okay when you retire or not whether you graduate and get a good job. None of that is, is ultimately what's threatening you and your life and your devotion to God. But you know what is? Living a life without the words of God who saved you. So follower of Jesus, you need this. Your life depends on it. And that's actually how Moses leaves the community after repeating the law in Deuteronomy. And he says, I give you these words because they're the words of life. (laughs) Not just like they're words for instruction or they're helpful uh, pieces of tidbits for you to get through life and raise your kids and live a good life in the burbs. This is actually the words of life and your life depends on them. That's drastic and true. And you and I will constantly ruin this amazing feast that is before us by just kind of snacking on other words. Have you ever ruined like an amazing dinner by snacking? I'm uh, pretty famous for doing it, especially when I get around my mom because my mom has a tendency to like make 11 appetizers before the meal. And the meal's great. I'm looking forward to it always. But then I just have too many appetizers and I'm like half sick by the time we get to the real meal. I do it every time. It's just kind of like my mom's love language and I just, I just take it all. It's just food, right? But so many of us, that's how we approach this. We end up ruining this feast of God's word and we don't even have an appetite for it anymore because we're constantly day in, 
and day out, day and night, nibbling and being shaped by other words, by sermons of our culture, by our social media feeds. Ironic that they're called feeds. But those words are shaping us. They are story shaping words that come and tell us a different set of values. Tell us what blessed living looks like. Tell us what you and I deserve. Tell us what life is about. So follower of Jesus, if you're not nourished day and night by the words of God, you will fill up on junk. You will. And you know what's going to come out? Junk. There's always words fighting to define you to teach you, to shape you. It's what words do. Words do that. If the words of God are not being internalized by you and me, just brought down into the muscle memory of the very person we are to remind us of who God is and who you are, someone else's words will. And I always find it funny when, you know, I talk to friends who we're not followers of Jesus and we're raising our kids differently and we're looking at life differently and there's always kind of this moment of like, well, but you're kind of brainwashing your kids by teaching them the Bible, aren't you? And I'm always like, yeah, yeah, I am. Like I'm absolutely washing my kids' entire person. I'm washing my kids' brains. I'm brainwashing them with who God is and who God says they are. You know why? Because if I don't, Beyonce will. If I don't, someone else will. If I don't tell my daughter what she's worth and how to see herself and her body, Beyonce will, Shakira will. So understand that words shape, words form, words do something to us. And the words that we bring in come out. They do, they, they shape us, our actions, our thought world, our, our words are shaped by day to day, day and night, what we meditate on what we give ourselves to. You and I become like what we delight in. So to close and apply this, let me ask you a couple questions. Let me just ask you a few questions to just try to slow down a little bit and get at this together and give you a few practices this week. Number one, do you approach scripture like it's a feast? Like I'm talking like 30 foot long table, more food than you can imagine. The king is in the middle sitting at the table and he says, come sit down. That's the word of God. Do you approach it like it's a feast? Do you approach it like you need it for daily sustenance? Go four hours without eating and watch how grumpy you are. It's called hangry. Imagine if you go days and weeks and months without feasting on the word of God. Imagine what your heart does. Imagine what your mind does. Imagine the lies that circulate in us and get internalized by us if we don't approach scripture like it's the feast that we need for daily sustenance. Number two, are you hungry to hear from God? Right now, and be honest, if you're not, it might be because you've forgotten what it means to delight in him. That you and I are not saved by religious duty. We're saved by delight. You and I are not saved by religious ideas and theological notions dropping into our brain. We're saved because our heart 
posture shifts from delighting in other things that are not God and shifting to delighting in God himself. So currently, are you hungry for more of God? Are you hungry to hear from God? Or are you just kind of like, well, I could eat. You know when you're not really hungry and there's food and it's like, well, I, get, I could eat. Not like that, but like you're, you're starving and you're running to the table to have this feast because you want to delight in God. And third, are you actively looking to do this? Are you actively meditating on God's word? Are you actively digesting it? Are you actively internalizing it? And if you're not, and this is not something you've even begun to practice, here's what we're gonna do this week. I'm gonna encourage you to just open the Psalms and just read a Psalm in the morning and read another Psalm at night and just go through the Psalms. You'll get through however many you get through. Maybe you'll do two or three every morning because you just start to, to your appetite will grow. Uh, for others of you who are really aren't readers and you haven't gotten into this, just take Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. It's actually a Hebrew acrostic. So every letter of the Hebrew alphabet is represented and, and it's, it's tons of verses. Just take Psalm 119 and read a couple verses in the morning and a couple verses at night and, and read it and then digest it and read it slow. You know, you and I don't rush fine dining, right? You don't go get like steak and just like plow through it and walk out and throw your napkin on the table, right? You find dining, you, there's something about it that there's something to be savored. And you can't savor something in a rush. And we talked about that in our series in the fall, just that hurry, this kind of is this soul sickness that just leaves us unable to actually commune with God and actually get in touch with, with self. So here's what I would say this week, just be slow. Digest God's word. Make it a daily priority. Meditate on it. Read a few words at a time, a few verses at a time, and then stop. And then pray it. And ask God to take what you just read and use it to fuel obedience and a changed life. Take what you just read and ask God to create a bigger appetite in you for more of him and for more of his word. One thing I do sometimes when especially I'm struggling to kind of connect with, with my Bible or connect with the word or connect with God through the word is I, I do something that I, I learned years ago called palms down, palms up. What you do is, is you actually start by, by praying and you put your palms facing down and you take this as a posture of surrender and you just kind of, you pray and you, you let go of things. You think about the day, you think about the week and you just, you surrender. This is a time for you to repent. It's a time for you to just come back to God and lay things down. And then you turn your palms up. And this is when you turn, that's kind of a hinge on your prayers where now you turn the corner into receiving and asking just to create in, in you a, a, more of an appetite for his word, to give you a heart that is hungry for who he is and what he says. And then you could do it as many times as you want. You could, you know, as you're praying, you're like, oh, I got to repent for that again because I'm a bonehead. You, and you go palms down. And then it's like, oh, but Lord, I really just want you to enlarge my heart for you and give me more of an appetite. Palms up. 
Some of you, you're romantic like that and you love those kinds of things. And some of you just helps you focus. But I would just encourage you, little things like that help a lot when we're approaching God and we're learning how to meditate, truly meditate and pray the scriptures. And last, don't approach scripture ever, ever without prayer. You cannot approach the word of God without inviting the author of those words. And if the Bible truly is to be alive, we need the God who is alive and gives life to use those words to transform us. I have a quote from Matt uh, Smethurst uh, in Before You Open Your Bible. And here's what he says. I am convinced that a prayerless approach to God's word is a major reason for the low-level dissatisfaction that hums beneath the surface of our lives. We rob ourselves of joy and peace when we fail to pray. Indeed, approaching scripture apart from prayer is one of the most counterproductive things we can do. For prayerless Christianity is powerless Christianity. I think he's right. If we just approach the Bible just kind of casually, or we approach it for mere information, or we approach it as something to be studied instead of approaching it as something to be prayed and opened up to, to be feasted on, we miss out on what the Bible actually is for. And there's actually prayers in the Bible. If you just are at a point where you don't know how to pray, this week, as you're going through Psalm 119, in verse 18, there's a prayer right in the middle of it. It says, open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things of your law. Just pray that. Pray that before you open up the word. Pray that before you go to the Bible. And last but not least, this requires a lot of grace, a lot of patience, And it takes practice. So if this is something that's new to you, and you haven't really found that rhythm yet, this takes practice. It takes practice, it takes commitment, and it takes discipline. But everything worthwhile does. Everything worthwhile takes discipline. It takes actually delighting in because discipline follows what we delight in. The most important things of life, we prioritize. Look at your week. What do you prioritize right now? That's going to point you back to ultimately what gives you most pleasure and what is at the center of your life. How much more should the word of God be at the center? There's a saying that I like is, it's how you spend a day is how you spend your life. This is helpful because every day you and I are reinforcing and shaping and forming habits. And how you spend a day is ultimately how you spend your life. So some of you more kind of extreme people, you're like, okay, that's it. I'm going to meditate on the word now. I'm going to do it day and night. I'm going to do it for the next 40 years. Just start with today because how you spend a day is how you spend your life. And pay attention to how your day is spent. Pay attention to where your time and energy is going, especially in the first 15 minutes and last 15 minutes of your day. It's just psychologically true that that is where you do your best thinking. That's actually the time of your day that shapes you most. So how awesome would it be if one of the first things we do is not grab our phone and scroll through Facebook, but to actually grab the word and feast. And the last thing we're thinking about as our head hits the pillow is the God that we are meditating on. And this takes practice. And I really do love how Joshua 
kind of takes over. There's this passing of the baton of leadership from Moses. So Moses finishes his life in ministry by reminding Israel of the importance of the word because it's, it, their life depends on it. And then Joshua, when he takes over leadership, he starts and in Joshua 1 verse 8, he says, the law shall not depart from your mouth. Right in your mouth. Chew on it, right? Digest it. Meditate on it day and night. Why? So that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. Church, it's not enough to just know our Bible. It's not enough to just study our Bible, read our Bible, or memorize our Bible. The goal of all of that is to live out all of life in relationship with the God that's revealed in the pages of the Bible. So one of the most supernatural, spiritual things that you can do this week, starting today, is open your Bible and feast on God's word daily. What this means is that the most important question to ask every time we open the Bible isn't, what does this mean? Or what do I need to know? But it's instead, it's what can I obey? How can I respond? How can I live life in light of this? Let me pray for us in that light. Father, we want to respond obediently. We want your words to be alive in us as your church, as individuals. We just ask that today, if Lord, feasting on your word and meditating on who you are has just kind of got buried in other responsibilities and other busyness of our week, that Lord, you would just urge us to bring that back to the center of our daily lives. That you would teach us, be patient with us as we come to meditate on your word. Not just to know more stuff, but so that we can enjoy relationship with you. I pray that this week as we go to practice that, that you would make um, that a response of obedience to you, Jesus as we come after you and follow after you, that we would have this faith and this trust really lead to works and that we would do this proactively as we feast and meditate, that you would use it to transform us and allow it to be the way that we fight, Lord, against all other options of things that come and tell us to delight in them, that we would be able to meditate on your word and delight in you better. We love you and we do need you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.